I have called up in all my years of sorcery, no ominous and gibbous. And the Hello, and welcome to The Double Shadow, a podcast exploring the weird fiction of 20th century writer Clark Ashton Smith. I'm Tim. I'm Phil. And I'm Ruth. And this week, we'll be covering The Dweller in the Gulf. And it's been a while since we put out an episode, so... It's been four months since we've recorded, guys. Like, well, that's not so Really? Bad. Just a day under four months, yeah. Last time we recorded was Smith's birthday, uh, January 13th, and it's, uh, God, it's May 12th. That's so, um, symbolic. Whose fault is that, Phil? Uh, Phil, Phil. I want to say Jesus, uh, <laughs> but I'm not sure if that's correct. I'll go with Jesus. <laughs> no, I guess it's mine. I've been busy, you know, life, things happen, What? Et cetera, et cetera. What have you been doing, Phil? Well, I made a movie, so that happened, which was fun. It's a rotoscoped movie, so by made, I mean we shot the live action parts, um... But nobody will be able to see it for probably two years. So there's that. Uh, Tim was in it. I was. Uh, a couple times. I was not asked to be in it. I should have asked you to be in it, but things got cra- things got crazy. We're going to shoot again for a couple weeks probably. So maybe you can come up and die uh, dramatically. Because oh it's really the only the only thing that people get to do in this movie is either die <laughs> or be in their underwear. It's And sometimes you're in your underwear and you die. So it's, yeah. you know. I'm going to yeah, pass on the underwear because I've been job hunting for the last four months. So maybe not the best. <laughs> we got to get some Ruth underwear picks out on the internet to kind of um. sully your future. <laughs> in that case, I would go Beyonce style, like our Time Magazine cover, you know, full on granny panties, man. <laughs> yeah. Did you mention what kind of movie it is? It is a fantasy epic. It's a, it's a, I'm going to call it a weird fantasy epic in the vein of, um, uh, in the vein of heavy metal. If heavy metal was, pardon my expression, a better movie than it is. Um, that's the hope, I guess. Yeah. A little bit like Fire and Ice, if you've seen Fire and Ice. I don't know. So you're going for a cult classic, basically. Uh, yes, that's the target, is cult classic. The target is for those who like their fantasy, psychedelic, um... But not overly psychedelic. Still... Ultra-violent. Yeah. Occasionally it goes, like, occasionally it goes overly psychedelic, but it's still grounded in, um, (laughs) ultra-violence. And there's lots of nudity, male and female. (laughs) Uh, Jordan Smith, who is a reader of ours, plays, plays the villain in the film. He didn't appear nude on set, but he his character will be drawn naked, so he will have a entirely um, animated penis. So we can all pretend, just like I've always wanted. To. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, I guess it's my fault. I kind of thought that it was all of our faults, but I guess it's mostly mine. I'll take some of the blame as well. <laughs> I've been really busy. Thank you, Tim. I was pretty busy doing things, and now I've been rejected from 25% of Ivy League schools. We're going for a full 100% by the end of the year, or just, you know, a freaking job. 
So it's like you're failing at being rejected right now, right? Because 25%, that's an F. Right. You got to get that number. I know. If I'm only rejected by 25% of IVs, what's the point? That's like not actually a statistically useful number yet. Exactly. That's like barely being rejected. But yeah, there's been travel and there's been interview prep and there have been presentations, which I have to say, doing this podcast has really gotten me used to listening to my own voice. So I, I went hardcore on that stuff. Like I would be recording myself over and over again doing the presentation and then listening to it. Which I have to say, without this podcast, I could not have done that. See that? Yeah. We change lives. We, we do. We change our. <laughs> uh, what has Clark Ashton Smith been doing the last four months? Nothing. Nothing. He's dead. So lazy <laughs> today. Wow, wow, Phil. <laughs> well, I'm just saying. You know, it's not entirely my. It's true. We, we haven't been missing any new output. <laughs> yeah, is, exactly. I feel like this is an important thing. Um. I'm trying to think if anything big has happened in the world of Smithiana in the last four months, and I'm really not coming up with anything. Yeah, I don't think so either. No, it kind of just stays what it yeah. is. Well, let's um, change that. Yeah, let's let's mix it let's up. Let's talk about the, the story pot. that drove him from writing fiction <laughs> in, the, in the public marketplace. Uh, the Dweller in the Gulf was published in March 1933 in an issue of Wonder Tales. Not weird tales, wonder tales. <laughs> Which is very important. Tales of wonder. So on uh, Eldritch Dark, uh, where you can read all of Smith's stories and poems and fragments, um, there's an essay before this, the entry for this story, The Dweller in the Gulf, and it's written by Steve Behrens, and it's uh, dated September 28th, 1987. Uh, And in this essay, he talks about, Steve Behrens talks about how this story uh, Smith referenced as his triply unfortunate tale, and the writer of the essay uh, directly cites this specific story as one of the main causes for Smith to leave, uh, to withdraw from fiction writing in the mid-30s. Um, and basically it runs down like this. He, Smith wrote the story. He, uh, he really liked it. He liked that it was kind of a horror sci-fi story. He submitted it over to Weird Tales, but it was rejected. Was it 25% rejected or 100% I think it was a, it, well. Too much at, horror. At this time, it was 50% rejected. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> because then he uh, he sent it over to Wonder Stories. Yeah, it's Wonder Stories, not Wonder Tales. He sent it over to Wonder Stories, and Wonder Stories, the editor, uh, Hugo Gernsback, uh, liked it and said, I'll buy it, but you have to make these edits to it. Which, you know, so, he does all the time. Right. But with this one, he was like, I don't want to make these edits. I'm going to resubmit it to Weird Tales hope, mm-hmm. in, in the hopes that, quote, uh, he, it may find Wright in a semi-rational mood. <laughs> and Wright being Farnsworth, right, the editor of Weird Tales. Wright was not in a semi-rational mood and rejected it again, making it a total of 100% rejected by Weird <laughs> Tales. <laughs> Uh, he also submitted it to Strange Tales, and then the magazine folded. So he only had one outlet for it, and that was Wonder Stories. So he made he made the edits. He added about um, a little over a thousand words. He added a, a character, 
which we won't be talking about because we didn't read this version of it. Uh, th- that character was John Chalmers, whose function was to offer like a, sci- a, a pseudo-scientific explanation about what was going on. So he's kind of like the, the schlocky narrator in a B-movie, kind mm-hmm. of talking to the audience. Um, and then he sent it off to Wonder Stories and they accepted it. And then it was when it was published, they had re-edited it, published it under a different title. The Dweller in Martian Depths is what mm-hmm. they published it under. And it was, to quote Smith, atrociously edited. Whole paragraphs were removed. Uh, the ending was rewritten. And uh, a, quote, semi-illiterate office boy had added a lot of uh, alterations and alliterations to it. So he hated it, and he decided to never publish anything in Wonder Stories again, which sucked because Wonder Stories was the one place that would publish this type of fiction that he was writing, this kind of pseudo-horror science fiction stories, so... Yeah, he couldn't get it by Farnsworth Wright at this point. Yeah, no, Farnsworth Wright wasn't having it. So, yeah, so he stopped submitting this stuff. Now, you may recall um, a while back, back in August of 2013, we did some interludes, and Tim did one in which he read some of the the letters in a fantasy fan's uh, column area, The Boiling Point called A Quarrel with Clark Ashton Smith, and we'll link to that in the show notes, but a uh, Forrest J. Ackerman wrote in and was very upset with this story. I mean, really. And unfortunately, he wasn't upset with the things that you could attribute to this um, terrible editing. He was upset with other aspects of it, the fact that it was just a horror story in general, and it wasn't scientific enough. So The fact that he had to re-edit it, that it was published again re-edited and that it caused controversy amongst amongst the fans is his uh triply unfortunate tale however we'll be doing uh the original version which is what you can find on the eldritch dark site it's been published in a number of um in uh it's in the arkham house hardcover Mm -hmm. that that collected his um the abominations of yondo it's an arkham house collection and this it first it first saw print restored in that. And thank goodness for the good people at Brown who've preserved a cover of this, a copy of this. I believe it's Brown, yes? Uh, yes, yep. Yes. Brown University, yeah. Swelling and towering swiftly, like a genie loosed from one of Solomon's bottles, the cloud rose on the planet's rim, a rusty and colossal column strode above the dead plain through a sky that was dark as the brine of desert seas that have ebbed down to desert pools. Looks like a blithering sandstorm, commented Mazpec. Can't very well be anything else, agreed Bellman rather curtly. Any other kind of storm is unheard of in these regions. It's a kind of hell twister the eye has called the Zurth. It's coming our way, too. I move that we start looking for shelter. I've been caught in the Zuth before, and I don't recommend a lungful of that ferruginous dust. So we're back. And here we are, back on Mars. Yeah. Mars! 
All of these Mars stories, except for Seedling of Mars, have incredibly similar setups. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and that setup is a group of adventurers, Human. Earthmen, yep. humans, humans, all uh, men, uh, terrestrial all men, terrestrial men folk <laughs> are on Mars. The Wangular. And. I'm sorry. <laughs> and they are, uh, like, exploring, and they get into trouble. Yep. Uh, Usually plant-based trouble. <laughs> if you're on Mars, watch out for the yeah. plant life. Um, and this is the same, this is explicitly the same Mars as Yovamis mm-hmm. and also um, Valthum, the Ahis, Ahis, whatever, are a, uh, are a, the native Martian a familiar Martian. term. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And once again, our heroes um, are going out to a place where there aren't any ahis around. Right, yeah. They're out in an uninhabited region called the Char. C-H-A-U-R. Which sounds really cool and ominous. Yeah, there's some cool... Um, I mean, in Yavambis too, but in, in this one, there's some cool, like, what is Clark Ashton Smith's version of Mars world building going on that I kind of... Yeah. More so in, more so in Valthum than this, yeah. but... Um, there's some bits. It's fun. So what are these guys doing out here? They're looking they're like they're like a D&D party, right? Yeah. They're just they're looking for gold um or something. I don't know if it's explicitly gold in this one. I can't remember. Treasure. Yeah, the platinum like um, gold of Mars. Ah, yeah, that's right. Martian gold. <laughs> uh and they and it like there's some implication that maybe they were Exiled from Earth or something like what's that little line? It's like their uh, years of somewhat unwilling, somewhat exile. unwilling exile. Yeah, uh-huh. like somewhat unwilling. I don't really know what that means, but I like to think that they're Earth criminals trying to buy their way back. Yeah, exactly. And how are you going to do it with Martian gold? Well, I mean, shoot, I would. You know, there's a sandstorm, and they head for this cave to wait out the storm. Uh, inside, they light up these electric torches, uh, which become like. I have to say a little bit like the sticks in the very first story that we covered. They're like a conspicuous story detail that keeps getting brought up in kind uh-huh. of annoying, unnecessary ways. Um, but they have flashlights, suffice it to say. Um, and while they're waiting out the storm, they kind of like talk themselves into exploring deeper down into this cave. Right. Yeah, because like, there might be this some rich like, stuff in there. Right. Yeah, and they have like a wordy, an overly wordy exchange about it, yeah. but basically a great response to there might be riches. Yeah. Oh, wait, I also want to mention that another thing that Clark Ashton Smith seems to have invented without knowing he invented it were the Tauntauns. <laughs> these creatures, because <laughs> oh, yeah. they have these, these, these terrestrial explorers have these creatures called Vortlopes, um, mm-hmm. and they, they're curious mammals with elongated legs and necks, horny plated bodies, and there's some fabulous combination of llama and saurian. So, George Lucas owes some royalties. To well, they're you. like scaly tauntauns. Yeah, Desert tauntauns. Tauntauns have like horny plates on their faces. And- oh yeah, I guess they do. Now see if any of them ended up inside the tauntaun, then we could call shenanigans. <laughs> That's true. Or right. the vortlop. Or if someone said, these Vortlips smell really bad on the outside. <laughs> I've probably talked about it before, but I love the idea of Martian explorers with revolvers. Yeah. And they have revolvers. And these guys have revolvers. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. And the cave smells kind of wet, which makes them think, you know, maybe something's, um, maybe there is something in there. Maybe, maybe a, a 
creature or a being, or maybe, you know, it's some kind of uh, water, or they talk about dried up riverbeds where they find the gold earlier, so oh, something right. like that, yeah. perhaps. They head down. They, they tell themselves also, I have it in my notes, that it's in the interest of science, as if the narrator hadn't already told us that they were actually just out for gold. Am I right in that note, mm-hmm. that they, in their discussion, yes. they're like... Yeah, they talk about science. Yeah. 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 It's lies. They're just after the yep. gold. You can't trust these criminals. They're <laughs> obviously criminals. <laughs> um, so they head down this, um, they, they reach a cliff and it drops down and it's super dark, but there's uh, a kind of spiral path leading down. That's not ominous at all. No. And at this point, they've also already heard a super ominous sound, like this wet, like a wet, sucking, nasty Sound, right, and they right? they also equate it with something living. Yeah, but they're like, "Hey, let's uh, let's let's go down a little bit." So they go down. We're a bunch of Earthmen with revolvers <laughs> and flashlights. What can hurt us? What's the worst? What's the worst? The worst that happens is we walk out of here with packs full of Martian gold. A dead thing <laughs> slung over our shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> so they yeah, so they head down this this spiral pit down into the darkness and it goes for a while so much so that they're like okay let's quit going down because it's going to go down forever it seems like and they even like throw a rock down and they don't hear it land so then they head back up so they're well, like but they okay. hear a sound again the second it's the same sound the second time yeah part of it that's what makes him stop Go ahead. Part of its terror lay in an implication of remoteness, which appeared to signalize the enormity of its cause and to emphasize the profundity of the abysm. Heard in that planetary pit beneath a lifeless desert, it astonished and shocked. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think that this, their central flaw as criminals is that they're a little wishy-washy. You know, they talk themselves into it, they hear the sound once, they go a little bit farther down, they hear it again. Of course they're going to hear it again, and they're, like, shocked. And they're like, you know what? <laughs> Let's not be heroes. Screw science. Screw the yeah. gold. Let's, Let's go, go watch the... <laughs> Let's go watch that storm. And so then the story ends with them just, you know, sitting in a cave watching out a sandstorm, right? <laughs> okay, good. That makes me feel happy. So they head back up. They're on their way, and then all of a sudden, they see a horde of pale, eyeless eyehies. These native Martians are just crowding the way up, so they can't get back to their packs. They're completely blocked. I know this is a bad thing, but at this point, I think of them as being like um, Dr. Susie and Sneetches, <laughs> but instead of like star-bellied and whatnot, I think of them as just being eyeless and pale. Spongy-chested, eyeless eyehies. I mean, that's vaguely racist, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> They're native peoples. You can't, you can't call them sneeches. Well, are you familiar with Dr. Seuss's sneeches? Yeah, okay. yeah I am. I'm just giving you a hard time. Uh, so before we get into the next reading, yeah. we should talk about how they do try to communicate with the eyes. First, they like try to speak the Martian language, uh-huh. and then they even... Tr- are, do they try or they think about trying? I guess there's some kind of sign language that right, but, Martians and humans yeah. share. But they're, blind, but they're eyeless. So they're like, yeah. well, this isn't going to work. Because they think about that as a backup. But Yeah. Uh, so they try to push through, and that doesn't work. Bellman drew his revolver, and joining the others to follow suit. We've got to get through them somehow. 
And if they won't let us pass without interference... The click of a cocked hammer served to finish the sentence. As if the metallic sound had been an awaited signal, the press of the blind white being sprang into sudden motion and surged forward upon the terrestrials. It was like the onset of automatons, an irresistible striding of machines concerted and methodical beneath the direction of a hidden power. Bellman pulled his trigger, once, twice, thrice at a point-blank range. It was impossible to miss, but the bullets were futile as pebbles flung at the spate of an onrushing torrent. The eyeless beings did not waver, though two of them began to bleed the yellowish-red fluid that serves the Martians for blood. The foremost of them, unwounded and moving with diabolical sureness, caught Bellman's arm with long, four-jointed fingers and jerked the revolver from his grasp before he could press the trigger again. He saw the steely flash of the colt as it hurtled down at the darkness and space from the hand of the Martian. Then the fungus white bodies, milling horribly on the narrow road, were all about him, pressing so closely that there was no room for effectual resistance. Shivers and Maspic, after firing a few shots, were also deprived of their weapons. The entire episode had been a matter of moments. There was only a brief slackening of the onward motion of the throng. Two of those members had been shot down by Shivers and Maspic, and then hurled expeditiously into the gulf by their fellows. The foremost ranks, opening deftly, included the Earthmen and forced them to turn backward. Then, tightly gripped in a moving vice of bodies, they were borne resistlessly along. Handicapped by the fear of dropping their torches, they could do nothing against the nightmare torrent. Rushing with dreadful strides on a path that led ever deeper into the abyss, and able to see only the lit backs and members of the creatures before them, they became a part of that eyeless and cryptic arm. So that's kind of cool. It's weird to read Clark Ashton Smith doing like full on pulp, mm-hmm. which is totally the like, well, if they won't let us pass, cock of the gun. Like it's, yeah, it's like suddenly we're in a, like a, uh, Mickey Spillane. Let's voice. see how well they pass lead through their system. <laughs> Let's give them a dose of earth lead poisoning. And man, they are not faced. Like, no. Like, I love that they, actually kind of just push the shot ones over the side yeah. down the chasm. Like that is some hardcore Yeah. Whatever it is that they're doing that they're that they are doing. And it's and also weird that they're not they're not actually talking or, or anything, you know, they're what well, was yeah, cryptic. Yeah. As well as eyeless. They're not gibbering or blubbering. Uh, but our heroes, heroes. Oh, did we mention all their names? So it's Maspic, Chivers, and who's the other Bellman. one? Bellman. Yeah. Yes. Um, and they still have their torches. So that's yes, cool. which... Just for the record, <laughs> yeah. they still yeah. have their torches. Well, you'd think that they couldn't, like, they've got to be deep enough underground that, like, you could not see right. anything without these. Can you imagine? Yeah. I have a fear of caves. Like a serious, I can't even go to big caverns, caves, and so I can't like I can imagine the the, the, the absolute suffocatingness and knowing that there's just a flashlight between mm-hmm. you and the cave is still enough to keep me from going into caves. Even a good flashlight, I can't do it. Even a good flashlight. Nope. Even a good flashlight. <laughs> that sounds like a real phobia. Um, I love eyeless and cryptic army. Is just a great <laughs> turn of phrase. It's just cool. I might join a cryptic army. I don't know if I would want to join an eyeless army, but a cryptic army is, sounds like my kind of Yeah, army. it really sounds like the best kind of army. Yeah, because you don't know what they're up no, to. Don't so judge cr- them. It's so cryptic. 
<laughs> Bring a torch. They're also they're a bit like these ahais, a bit like um, later twentieth century version of zombies, right? They, yeah. they don't speak; they move sort of in a weird, shuffling, uncommunicative way, mm-hmm. and you can blast them, and they don't give a single care. <laughs> so, what does the cryptic army do? They carry the men down and down and down into the darkness, and it takes a really long time. And the men are helpless to resist. They can't break free. They can't. They tried shooting their way out to no avail. And then finally, they reach the bottom. And it's weird because they can tell that unlike, well, honestly, I think the whole spirally staircase was probably a bit of a giveaway. Well, spirally uh, ramp. But the bottom is very artificial. It's, it's flattened. There's bar-reliefs of of which were obscene as the visions of madness, shocking the eye like a violent blow. Obscene as the visions of madness. <laughs> what? <laughs> Isn't that the tagline for your new film? Yeah, are they like be. sex reliefs? What's going probably, on? Probably, well, yeah, they probably are like alien sex reliefs. I was going to say blasphemous monsters, but sure. What if it's blasphemous well, monsters having sex with eyeless eye in a cryptic? Were they doing obscene things, these monsters? Probably, probably cryptic things. <laughs> Man, I've been, the cryptic army gets up to some crazy obscene <laughs> stuff. Well, when you don't have I, eyes, you just got to com- compensate. <laughs> yeah, you just go with it, right? I want to join this army so badly. Well, what the, so they this army they bring them down there. So this is what you would be in service to. So while the as they're down there and they see this kind of this structured cave that they're brought into, there's um like pyramidal tiers and there's uh there's pillars that don't seem to reach anything that just go up into darkness. And on the top of the the highest of the, it's it's hard to imagine from just his expl- explanation of what this is. Seven oblique and pyramidal tiers, and at the top of these tiers is a tiny statue, and he describes it no bigger than a hair. So it's like you it's know, so weird. it's tiny, it's like a bunny. It's like a bunny size. But it, did it, neither neither of you saw uh, that. Most recent Rob Zombie movie, I'm assuming no. the Lords of Salem. No. There's like a a moment that is like I don't even know if I can if any of the listeners have seen the movie, they will probably know what I'm talking about. But like at one point the lead woman enters this like I guess it's like a church, and at the top of the stairs is like this bizarre demon. I guess it's supposed to be a demon like thing, but it it just looks like a like a like a roasted turkey walking on its <laughs> but it's like all small and weird and just like what is this? Uh, that's what I thought of when I was like, really, it's no bigger than a hair. Yeah. It's so strange. The image resembled nothing they had ever seen on the red planet or elsewhere. It was carven of whitish gold, and it represented a humped animal with a smooth and overhanging carapace from beneath which its head and members issued in tortoise fashion. The head was venomously flat, triangular, and eyeless. From the drooping corners of the cruelly slitted mouth, two long proboscides curved upward, hollow and cup-like at the ends. The thing was furnished with a series of short legs, issuing at uniform intervals from under the carapace, and a curious double tail 
was coiled and braided beneath its crouching body. The feet were round, and had the shape of small, inverted goblets. Unclean and bestial as a figment of some atavistic madness, the Eidolon seemed to drowse on the altar. It troubled the mind with a slow, insidious horror. It assailed the senses with an emanating stupor, an effluence as of primal worlds before the creation of light, where life might teem and raven slothfully in the blind ooze. On the other hand, it's kind of like a rabbit. Well, it's the size of a rabbit. It, <laughs> it's it really feels like to me rabbit. more like a centipede with um with sticky cup feet. Yeah, and like a weird uh, kind of centipede. Oh yeah, you said centipede. Centipede. Yeah, I'm like definitely a, getting a like centipede. Shells. Deal. Yeah, but it has like a, this shell over it, which mm-hmm. I'm assuming is segmented. Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming that as well. I don't know that it actually is. But it's a but, cool monster. Once oh, again, yeah. Smith delivers. The problem, yeah, he does. And I, uh, while I don't love this story, there's definitely some like great writing right. in it. I do question the comparison of the hair, because no matter yeah. how much he describes it, I still think bunny rabbit. And it's definitely not, it's definitely not a bunny rabbit. Right, but... Maybe he could have thought of something else. Like a turtle. That well, no, size. it's... That was the size of a hair that it could be no bigger than, you know? A large turtle. <laughs> it was no bigger than a large turtle. Next time he submits it for publication and right. we're the editors, yeah. I'm going to hone in and give really annoying notes on that one line. <laughs> is it is it bigger than a large turtle? Could you compare it to a bread box? <laughs> Maybe if he said no bigger than a human skull. Oh. There we go. Yeah. Tim. You won the story. <laughs> okay, I'm going back in time. Uh, so they see this statue up there, and it gives them really weird feelings in their feeling places that they have in their body. Bestial, obscene feelings. Yeah. Cryptic feelings. And then all of these these automata eyehys start crowding up to it and touching it with their blubbery hands. And as they touch it, they start falling asleep. Yeah, it's kind of like weird that way. Like, they, yeah, it's a soporific. And then Bellman, Chivers, and Maspic shrug their shoulders and go and do the same, and they start touching the statue. And it's uh, really interesting how he describes how it feels. Uh, the thing was cold to the touch and clammy, as if it had lain recently in a bed of slime. But it seemed to live, to throb and swell under their fingertips. From it. In heavy, ceaseless waves, a dark vibration surged, an opiate power that clouded the eyes, that poured its baleful slumber into the blood. So it, like, makes you go to sleep. And also, uh, it looked, it seems like Clark Ashen Smith learned the word Anon in this story, so decided to use it in almost every paragraph. It, it is a very Anon story. <laughs> yeah. So Chiver and Maspic just pass out. Bellman gets this vision where he's himself, but he's also one of these eyeless troglodytes, and is also all the thing on the altar, and wakes up and sees the half-eaten troglodytes, and hears the sound, and he's like, okay, everybody run. What do you think the meaning of that vision is, though? Like, what, like why that? That is a very good question. I, I didn't. So he, he starts pulling him and says, get up, damn you! He admonished them. Go. If we're ever to escape from this hellhole, now's the time. So there's Smack oaths, in their faces. Abjurations, must, much muscular effort. 
And he even he still feels like he's taken some opiates or some such, but he's trying to get trying to get to to run away. So they try to ascend back upward. Yeah. So then they run and they run up and they run up and they're running up and they're running up <laughs> and they're running up for a really long time for almost as many pages. Chasing them. Yeah. They're running up for yeah. almost as many pages as they, it is. It took them to come down. But yeah. yeah, then they hear it. They hear it behind them. Sucker feet, same, sucker feet, sucker yeah, feet, sucker feet, feet, sucker feet, sucker <laughs> feet. Like, I wish I could make the sound that I'm thinking of, but it's that sound when you pull a sucker foot off of something. Yeah. <laughs> it's the sound of a sucker foot. <laughs> uh, and as they're running, they, like, don't use their torches at first because they want to preserve yeah. them, right? Uh-huh. And then, so that we get the reveal as they turn it on, and they're blocking the path is the thing. Not the representation of the thing, but the thing The itself, real thing. Right? And it's bigger than a hair. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's just filling the road behind them. How big... He doesn't ever really put it into actual size. How big do you guys think it is? It's I'm thinking like pretty 30, big, right? 30 feet long and maybe yeah. uh, 10 feet in diameter. Really yeah. freaking big. Right. Yeah, I think that about the same. The thing seemed was as old as that dying planet, an unknown form of primal life that had dwelt always in the caverned waters. Before it, the faculties of the Earthmen were drugged by an evil stupor such as they had felt before the Idolan. They could not move nor cry out when it reared suddenly erect, revealing its ridged belly and queer double tail that slithered and rustled metallically on the rock. Its numerous feet beheld in this posture were hollow and chalice-like, and they oozed with mythic wetness. No doubt they serve for suction pads, enabling it to walk on a perpendicular surface. Inconceivably swift and sure in all its motions, with short strides on its hindmost legs levered by the tail, the monster came forward on the helpless men. Unerringly, the trooper boss guides curved over, and their ends came down on Shiver's eyes as he stood with lifted face. They rested there, covering the entire sockets for a moment only. Then there was an agonizing scream. As the holotips were withdrawn with a sweeping movement, lithe and vigorous as a lashing of serpents. Shiver swayed slowly, nodding his head, and twisting about in half-narcotized pain. Maspic, standing at his side, saw in a dull and dreamlike manner the gaping orbits from which the eyes were gone. It was the last thing he ever saw. At that instant, the monster turned from Shivers in the terrible cups, dripping with blood and feeder, descended on Maspic's own eyes. Bellman would pause close behind the others, comprehended what was occurring like one who witnesses the abominations of a nightmare, but is powerless to intervene or flee. He saw the movements of the cupped members. He heard the single atrocious cry that was wrung from Chivers and the swiftly ensuing scream of Maspec. Then, above the heads of his fellows, who still held their useless torches and rigid fingers, the proboscides came toward him. With the blood rilling heavily upon their faces, with the somnolent, vigilant, implacable, and eyeless shape at their heels, hurting them all, restraining them when they tottered at the brink. The three began their second ascent of the road that went down forever to a night-bound avernus. Shocking. Crazy. Yep. Shock uh, horror. Uh, <laughs> Shock horror. Yep. What do you say about that? It ate their eyeballs. 
It ate their eyeballs, and then it and then it dragged them back down. Well, it led them back down. Like they they seem pretty. Uh, yeah. What's the point? I don't know. <laughs> I feel like there's a couple of points. Mars is not a very friendly place. <laughs> no. Um, All of this stuff I, gets living underground. Like just yeah. let's not just go there. Stay on the surface. Yeah. If. I think it's weird that he calls it a dying planet. I don't. I don't remember that being established that Mars is dying in his version of. Uh, it's. Of it's definitely like, you. It's on its second major civilization. Yeah, and, and it, so you definitely get more hints as well in um, the next story in Volthoom yeah. that it's a dying planet. In Volthoom, he talks about how old that civilization is. Right, but that's different than dying. Well, yes. stagnant, stagnate, perhaps. Yeah. I just think it's a weird word to use. I like it, but it's it's weird that it has it's not it's not like in these stories there's no I mean Volthum there is, but in these there's no like bigger picture of what Mars is. So it's right. a strange little descriptor to drop in in a story that's not really about the planet dying. Anyway. Uh so it eats its eyes, eats their eyes, and then they become these things. Yep. Like I, I do wonder if it's some sort of weird communion between the god and the worshippers. Like so, yeah. In the original story, I think, um, or rather, sorry, in the original, in the bastardized story, somebody escapes. At least one person escapes. Bellman and it's Bellman that makes it out. I think it's a strange story to quit over because here in 2015, it's clearly not that good. 14, Phil. 14. Whatever. Whatever the hell date it is, it's clearly not that good. No, it's really, it's not, I would not put it even, like, even if it's best Mars stories, I would say it's the worst of the Mars stories. I, uh, the, 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 ever since we started Mars, I knew that there was a Mars story that I had read before that I actively hated. And this is it. And I thought it was Healing of Mars, and I thought it was Yovambi's. This is the one that I read. It was like, that was terrible. It has a good monster, but it is, it, I mean, it is fundamentally the exact same structure as Yavambi's, which is a much better story. Mm-hmm. And it just it's just sort of like, what? Who cares? <laughs> yeah, I feel like there there's a lot of underground monster on Mars that seems to be like his shtick. If you guys have just I'm mean, unrelated to the story reading, but if you Googled image search Wonder Stories nineteen thirty three March like I did, mm-hmm. you'll notice that robots carrying people away is a recurring theme in the covers of these magazines. <laughs> there's at least Four yeah. that have that have people being carried away by robots. So now we know what the 1930s were afraid of. <laughs> That's These awesome. are actually pretty amazing covers. Like they're beautifully pulpy. Yeah. All right. So and do we have anything else for this one? Uh, I want to. I want to like it more than I liked it the first time I read it, and I guess that I do. But I still, I find it sad that it was like the story that made him want to quit writing because he was clearly so much better than it. Um, yeah. Like, I get why he'd be frustrated about it, I do, but, yeah, it's, like, compared to Volthoom, which it looks so much better, and which I'm looking forward to doing next time. Well, there you have it. When Clark Ashton Smith is reborn and relives his life in exactly the same way, <laughs> listen to this podcast and don't quit over Dweller in the Gulf, because you're better You'll than do that. so much better, dude. You'll do so much better. <laughs> next time on The Double Shadow, Volthoom where we cross the planetary entity with flowers. And the devil. Well, 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 uh, I'm talking about that old double shadow. Now that's a p-
podcast. Exploring the weird fiction of Clark Dash and Smith. Never mind. It's not going to work. I was trying to never mind. You tried. Let's just can we do a podcast yeah. for Christ's sake? Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, dweller in the Gulf.